Matthew 6 is basically the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and so if you, if you look at Matthew 5, 6, 7, it's the, it's, the mid, it's the middle, right? So then this teaching on prayer is basically the center of the center, right? So this morning we have the center of the center of the most important sermon given by the most important person ever. Uh, no pressure, right? So um, you can kind of think of this. I've been thinking, you know, it's, a, it's that really good piece of candy that has something really awesome inside. And so that's what... Um, that's what this morning is for us. Um, I'm going to ask my wife to come up here and read the passage for us. And so as she's doing that, um, turn, there, there should be a Bible maybe in a seat in front of you if you don't have one with you. But we'll, we'll be in Matthew 6, uh, starting in verse 5. And, um, and she's going to read that, read that for us. The words will also be on the screen um, if, um, if you want to follow there. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, that they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we, have also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you are forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, will you guys pray with me before we start? Uh, Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have that uh, to instruct us um, in, in something as important as, as prayer. Uh, I pray that this morning you will speak through me. I don't want these words to be my own. I want your, your spirit to go um, and prepare the hearts and minds of people to hear what you have uh, for us this morning. And we thank, I'm thankful for these people that have taken the time to be here. Um, and we pray, God, that this word um, just instructs their hearts um, this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, before we moved to Norman, I lived, uh, I lived in Fort Worth. And uh, to, to sort of, you know, get to know my coworkers and all that, I, I joined a flag football team with guys from work. Now, this is a group of meteorologists, right? A group of science guys. And our team was called the Natural Disasters, um, which I thought was just awesome. So... Um, we, go, we, we don't really practice. We talk a little bit about what we're going to do there. Uh, we go to the first game, and we, kinda, we get there early, we practice, and we're kind of running drills and do whatever. And the, the coach or the, the captain kind of calls everybody together, and he looks at me, and he's like, okay, Matt, um, you are, you're the fastest one on the team, so we're going to run a lot of plays and, and, and do, all, do a lot of stuff through you. And I just I get wide-eyed, and I'm like, guys, um, if I'm the fastest one on the team, uh, we, we're going to have a problem. Right, um, and so yeah, we didn't win a game. We didn't win a game that year. And to be perfectly honest, that's that's kind of how I feel this morning, right? Matt, will you preach on prayer? What, what, me? Really? I I'm not the prayer prayer expert, right? I'm not. Um, it's not something that I that I would consider myself good at. But but to be honest, I, I I feel like that's probably a lot of us this morning. A lot of us probably feel okay. Yeah, prayer prayer is something I do, but I I'm not an expert and kind of struggling with you know, what to pray, how to pray, and, and various things. And, and so I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. And, 
in the thought this morning, like, this passage, as I, as I looked at it and I, and I took the time to prepare for this morning, I was really encouraged. I, I, I was really encouraged by what it taught and what just it spoke really deeply to me. And, and I pray that that's the same uh, for you this morning. So I want to start asking the question, what is um, prayer? So prayer, prayer, a, a lot of people pray. It's a nearly universal action. And so over and over, sociologists, like where you find people, right, they say you find um, um, prayer. And so even, even the, the newest generation, millennials, right, even though they're the le- least re- religiously affiliated generation right now, they pray the same amount. When you ask, do you pray, they say yes. And so, um, that, that, but from a biblical worldview, that makes sense to us, I think, right? From Genesis 1, we see we're made in the image of God. And in Romans 5, I mean, in Romans 1, we hear the eternal power and divine nature of God has been clearly perceived. And so this awareness of God or knowledge of God is sort of written on our hearts. And that's, I think that has a sense of why this is nearly a universal practice. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, all human beings have some knowledge of God available to them. They have a sense that they need something or someone who was on a higher plane and infinitely greater than they are. Prayer is seeking to respond and connect to that being and to that reality, even if it is no more than calling out into the air. So in the universal sense, Tim Keller, he he defines prayer this way. It is a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. But we have to be clear and we have to know that that just because a lot of people pray that not all prayers are the same and, and they shouldn't be treated the same, right? We see prayer across all religions and cultures. You have Muslims bowing with their foreheads, hands, and knees on the grounds toward Mecca. Or you have Orthodox Christians reading, reading their prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. In, in Eastern religions and cultures, you, you have this silent, this, this meditative type of, of prayer. And you actually see that even, you know, uh, in yoga class, right? Where you, you, this idea of being centered, this centeredness, where we're trying to, um, a lot of people would call that prayer. Um, and I feel like that list could go on. But the idea is that the, year, the nearly universal nature of prayer and numerous types of prayer, that leads us to a few questions few questions this morning, like what are some of the things that distinguish Christian prayer uh, from this universal or, or more instinctive type of prayer? Should prayer be inward and contemplative, or should it be outward and maybe emotional? Should it be meditative? Should it be verbal? Like, what should we say? Like, we get to the how-to of, of prayer a lot. How much should I pray? How often? Uh, what should I say? Um, how sh- what words should I use? Is there special words that I need to use? Like, what do I need to pray for? I think when you really start to unpack and dig, there's a lot of questions that we have in prayer. And so we're going to take the time digging through the text this morning and kind of seeing the principles that, that Christ has for us in this uh, pinnacle teaching on, on prayer. And so, and then th- at the end, we'll, we'll kind of take these and try to tie it into to some things that maybe we can do in our lives to help us, to help us live those things out. So starting in verse 5, we see this. We see, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So this is a negative command telling us not to be like the hypocrites. So the question is, who are the hypocrites and what are they doing? Um, So most of the time, hypocrisy for us, our common definition is that we say we believe one thing, that we do something contradictory. We kind of live a double life. However, I want to be clear that that's not exactly what Jesus is referring to here. He's actually referring to people doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And so... 
what are, what are, what are the hypocrites doing that, that we should avoid? They, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Their motivation for prayer um, was to be seen by others. So they were praying. Praying is a good thing. And most religious Jews would follow a pattern of prayer they would go through uh, three times a day. But apparently, this, this um, certain set, these hypocrites, were actually kind of making a spectacle of doing that. And why? Because their motive was to be seen by others. And, that's, and, that, and, and the text tells us that's exactly what they got. It says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So it's exactly as it sounds. They wanted to be noticed by people. They wanted to be approved. They wanted to receive acclaim. And they wanted to be thought of as holy and righteous and good and perfect by other people. And they were, right? That, that's the teaching we see. The Pharisees were thought of um, as this really perfect, and these are the, uh, Jesus' storybook Bible calls it extra super holy people, right? These are people that everyone looked up to. Um, but they were seeking their reward from others and not from God. And so I feel like the principle here is that the motive matters more than the action. We shouldn't pray just so that people think highly of us. We cannot, we cannot be the focus of our own prayers. And now it's, we're, it's likely that we don't need to repent of standing on the street corner and praying, right? That's not something we do. But are there some of these spiritual practices that we see when we see of, of giving, of, of praying, of fasting? Are, are we doing those things so that people notice? And so we have to remember and we have to check our motives often and um, it's just that the motive matters. Like when you see the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, it, it, it feels like the motive is the only thing that matters. If you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, then the action, um, it's, it's just empty. So we're going to go back to the text. So we go back to verse 6 here, and we see the opposite sort of of the negative command. We see a positive command. We see, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So we see uh, when you pray at the beginning of both of these verses. So we're still supposed to pray. It's, it's sort of assumed that the disciples would be, would be praying. And I don't think there's really um, any doubt about that. But we, we see some pretty specific instructions about where to pray. We see go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who, who is in secret. Okay. Now, while it may seem at first that Jesus is, is sort of condemning all public prayer, I, I don't think that's the essence here. His life actually says otherwise. He's, he prays to bless meals. He prays before he feeds the 5,000. He prays before the feeds the 4,000. He does those things, and he also prays publicly with disciples. John 17 is, is a good example of that. But that being said, Jesus also spent a lot of time in private prayer, so much so that there are stories where the disciples don't know where he is, and they're looking for him. He would get up early in the mornings and he would go pray. So like, the, like we see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is using the action here to convey the message, right? We see if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Um, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. These, these literal statements are to give us the message. Um, and I think the message here is that we, again, we're reinforcing that we are not the focus of our prayer. What's most important is not the location or whether we shut the door, but the motive and orientation of our hearts. One could easily go into a room, right, and want to be noticed when they did that. Or you could go into the room, you could shut the door and still be thinking about yourself the entire time. And so, again, the action would be right, uh, but the motive would be wrong. 
So I think this reinforces the principle from chapter five, I mean, from verse five, but it goes a little, a step further. It goes a step further. Not only does the motive matter more, but the action uh, more, matter more than the action, but the motive for our prayer cannot be self-centered. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. The principle is that there are certain things to which we have to shut out when we are praying, in, whether we are praying in public or whether we're praying in secret. There is no value into entering into a secret chamber and locking the door if the whole time I'm full of self and thinking of myself. I might as well be standing on the street corner. No, I have to exclude myself as well as other people. My heart has to be open entirely and only to God. Moving on to verse 6 now. So we're just working our way through the text. So, and your father who sees you in secret, sees in secret, will reward you. So the theme, this theme of reward is actually an overarching theme and connects this portion of the sermon and uh, throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. Reward is used seven times um, in, the, in these, this passage in, in chapter 6. Um, and then the word treasure at the end of chapter 6 is used three times. So this continual emphasis, reward, 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 then treasure, um, tells us we should probably pay attention here. Now, the idea of being rewarded for our actions can stir up in us so this negative connotation of a works-based righteousness, right? But I don't think that's the sense of what Christ is teaching here. He's not teaching that we have to do these things to merit our salvation before God. He's not teaching us that we have to do these things so that God will love us. No, he's teaching that he's don't chase after these fleeting rewards from the world, but only the lasting rewards given to you by um, God the Father. In the reality, we are all motivated by rewards, even Jesus all right, so who for the joy set before him endured the cross in Hebrews 2. The call here is not to seek, is to seek rewards from God alone. We, we aren't even told exactly what those rewards are, only that they are eternal. At the end of chapter 6, we see that where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves break in and can steal. So we'd, I don't think we have time to really unpack all this, this idea of a God-centered reward-seeking except to say that we're seeking rewards from God by living in a God-honoring way. And that is explicitly encouraged here. We're encouraged to do that throughout this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And we seek these rewards out of our faith, right? Because we know God's a good father, we trust that his rewards are better, even when we don't know exactly what those are. These gifts given to us are really grace upon grace, and it expands on the bigger idea that we've talked about throughout the Sermon on the Mount is this idea of human flourishing. It's for our good to seek these from God alone. Moving on to the next, next two verses. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard from many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This phrase, heap up empty uh, phrases is, is translated vain repetitions in the King James Version. Um, and the emphasis here is on, on in the phrase empty phrases is on the word empty, or in vain repetitions is on the word vain. It's not actually on the word, the idea that something's repeated. Jesus repeated his prayer three times in the garden. Um, Paul has repeated his, his prayer, especially, specifically when he talks about removing the thorn from his flesh. So I don't think we're, we're sort of being instructed that we can't repeat our prayers. A, a heartfelt petition that is repeated is acceptable. But what I think Christ is teaching us here is to avoid mindlessly doing and repeating things, right? Um, 
that so statements are, are doing things where our heart gets disengaged. We see this is reinforced, I think, by verse 7, which says, For they think that they will be heard for their many words. It's letting us know that the length of our prayers has no influence on its effectiveness. There's no special length of prayer or certain set of words that we can use to get God's attention. So Jesus is condemning any kind of mathematical or, or quantitative formula to, to prayer. Why? Well, the text, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Phrasing the whole, kind of rephrasing and uh, writing this in, my, in kind of in a way that helped me understand. It says, do not be like those who heap up any phrases or to try to get God's attention by using a lot of words. Because God is your Father, and he already knows what you need before you ask him. God doesn't need to be persuaded by a cleverly worded prayer. God doesn't need to be convinced by well-reasoned logic, and he doesn't need to be awakened by a lot of words. Like, we, we have to just keep talking to wake him up, right? Think about that for a second. The God of all creation is so committed to our good that we cannot convince him to give us something that's not the best for us. I, I honestly wish I could say that was the case for me as a dad, right? But after I get asked something for about the 25th time, I, I pretty much give in, Right? So, Dad, Dad, can I have this bow and arrow? No, no, I, I promise not to shoot my brother. No, I don't think I should get a bow and arrow for you. Dad, please, I, 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 I'm going to be super careful. I will not do anything you don't want me to do. No, buddy, we're not going to. Dad, please, I, I, this is so awesome. Look at it. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but no. And this, Dad, what if I mow the yard? You got it. Right? So, hey, we come home, we come home. Hey, look. And she shows, shows Aaron, look what I got. And she like, looks at me like, what in the world? So, yeah, God's not like that. He, we he can't just, like, trick him into giving us something that's not good for us. Right? And to me, that's, that's comforting. So what do we have so far? We've gone through four verses pretty quick, really, really going through a lot of these things. And so what are the principles that we have so far? The heart and motive for prayer is much more important than the frequency, length, or mechanics of our prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we must get rid of this mathematical notion of prayer. What else? An understanding and knowledgeable father does not need to be convinced of our needs. John Stott puts it this way, he is neither ignorant so that we need to instruct him, nor hesitant so that we need to persuade him He is our father, a father who loves his children and knows all about their needs. So with those principles in mind, let's continue working through the next parts of the text. This this is probably, uh, uh, many of you are probably familiar with this passage. This is the Lord's Prayer. It says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Many of you have probably recited this prayer thousands of times. Um, even those, in, um, those of you in this room who wouldn't consider yourselves believers, right, or, or, or who haven't spent a lot of time in church, know parts of this passage. There's some, there's some aspects that are very familiar. But I, I don't want the idea that of, of how familiar this is to, to cause us to overlook its message and its significance. There's, we could spend a lot of time on this passage and um, 
There's so much packed into the, to, to, to this in so few words, but um, I'm going to run through it really quick. But we, about a year and a half ago, we actually spent the time in the, in the Lord's Prayer. And so um, if you want to go back and review those, those things are on uh, the website because we're going to go through this pretty quick. Um, so as I mentioned before, one theologian calls this, this section of Matthew 6, he calls it the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Lord's Prayer, he refers to that as the center of the center of the center. So this prayer is the pinnacle teaching for the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus, this is the most important uh, lesson or the thing that's taught from the most important sermon, from the most important person of all time. So Tim Keller calls the Lord's Prayer a prayer of prayers. And I think that's a good description because that's what it is. It's divided up into, there's an introduction and then there's six separate sort of petitions that, that the prayer makes. I think we need to note the, the order here of the petitions. The first three are oriented uh, towards God, or what I would say they're oriented upwards, right? And then the next three are oriented towards uh, needs and, and relationships, or they're oriented outwards. This pattern is, uh, follows the pattern that we see in the Ten Commandments, where the first four are oriented upwards and the next six are oriented outwards. It also follows the pattern of the first and second commandment, greatest commandments, or love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love the neighbors yourself. So we have this idea of upward first and then outward. And I think that's a very important principle and pattern for our prayers, um, that we, we take the time to do, to do the, the outward um, after we have oriented our hearts um, towards God. And the very first phrase in the prayer helps us to do that, right? Our Father in heaven. So, so far I've skipped over the mentions of Father in the text. Um, it's been mentioned 10 times in this text. So if you include all of these, these teachings in Matthew 1 uh, through 18, I mean, Matthew 6, 1 through 18, it's mentioned 10 times, 10. And it's mentioned, the word Father is mentioned 17 times in the entire uh, Sermon on the Mount. This is a major theme of God, that, of what uh, Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, the major theme of the book of Matthew. Beginning the prayer this way calls the attention to our status we're framing our hearts and our attitudes so that we know who we are and who we are praying to, right? We are children of God, approaching our good Father who loves us immensely. And it's only through Christ that we have this adoption into the family of God. And that each and every time we call God Father, we should be reminded of that truth. So continuing on. Um, we see, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So a few things to note here. First, hallowed is not really a word that we use much. Um, it means made holy or to um, greatly revere or honor. The, the Christian Standard Bible translates the phrase, your name be honored as holy. And I think that helps, helps us understand that a little bit. And also, I, I think it, you can make the case that these three petitions are actually asking for the same thing. They're asking that the realities of heaven would be fully realized on earth. And I think this understanding is strengthened by the, the phrase we see at the very, very end, which says, on earth as it is in heaven. So, right, like, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Additionally, you could, you could say that those things are true, right? 
right? Is God's name already holy? Yes. Is God's kingdom coming? Yes. Um, is God's will always being done? Yes. So what is Jesus teaching us? Again, Jesus is teaching us to pray for the realities of heaven to become realities on earth. Because in heaven, God's name is always revered as holy. But that's not the case, not yet the case on earth. In heaven, God is fully ruling and reigning as, as king, but not yet on earth. God's sovereign will is always done, but on earth it comes, it comes with pain and sickness and suffering. But in heaven, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. This is Revelation 21.4. So this is an acknowledgement of the already but not yet reality that we're living in as God's ki- in God's kingdom and a request for it to be fully realized here on earth. In praying this also, it, it sort of leads us to think, am I revering God's name as holy? Am I seeking that God's kingdom comes? Am I acting in accordance with God's revealed will? So in a way that only prayer can, praying these things can actually change our hearts to pursue them. Right? When our prayers focus first on God and not on our own needs and desires, then we rightly orient our hearts. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, adoration and thanksgiving, a God-centeredness, comes first because it heals the heart of its self-centeredness which curves us in on ourselves and distorts our vision. So God-centeredness is a um, huge principle that that, um, we'll talk about and and go over a little bit even more later. Now that we've done that, we've rightly centered on God. We've rightly put our place in God's family and our understanding. We move on to the second part of the prayer which says, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm going to move, move through these pretty quick. So, give us this day our daily bread is a brief and simple word uh, that has a very wide scope. As Martin Luther says that. We're praying that our basic needs are provided for. But we're not only praying that, but we're praying for the means of those needs as well. So, that includes government. That includes a good economy. That includes a just society. Um, so, we, in this short statement, Jesus captures everything we need to provide life's uh, necessities. And so, now, since this is, a model, this is a model prayer, we shouldn't think that our prayers always have to be this, this short, right? We, but we should have confidence in praying for the means of meeting needs. So we can pray for government, and we can pray for justice, we can pray for provision, right? That's kind of what's being taught here. Uh, this portion of the prayer represents a humble acknowledgement that our dependency on God for everything we need to survive, everything. Um, he controls and he provides it all. Next thing we see in the text is, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Uh, we need to make the point here that we shouldn't really think of debts as anything to be take, taken to mean anything other than sins. And so the idea that this could be read, forgive us our sins, for we have also, as we have also forgiven uh, those who have sinned against us. So Jesus is instructing us to confess our sins and to seek forgiveness regularly in prayer. He is not saying this to that we need to seek our justification, that if we forget to it, somehow we're, we're, the, the justification provided for us on the cross is, not, is no longer valid, right? Romans 5 says this, Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
And we, we see this idea that we have been justified and we are reconciled, right? The tense of those phrases reveals that something that's kind of started in the past and continues into the future. We are justified by our faith in Christ's work. We're not justified by our daily confession of sin. However, confessing our sins is a continual reminder of that justification and the grace that is shown to us. And I actually, I think that's why Jesus connects these things for us with the forgiveness of others, um, of God's forgiveness for us. Jesus is highlighting the correlation between our willingness to forgive and to be forgiven. We see this in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. That, that parable ends like this. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt, all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? If we cannot forgive others, if we continue in bitterness and resentment or even vengeance, then it's clear that we're not right with God. And the hypocrisy of seeking forgiveness for our own sins but not forgiving others is clear and is again the idea that the motive um, in our hearts is really what Jesus is after. Last petition here, last, last uh, part of the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Like other parts of the Lord's Prayer, this has, needs a little bit of explaining. It can be sort of confusing on the first read. Why? Well, because we know that God does not tempt us. James 1 makes that clear. James 1 also makes clear that we're, we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. So what does Jesus have in mind? What is he, what is he instructing us to pray here? I think one thing that helps clear this up is the, the translation of that last phrase that says, uh, deliver us from evil, is likely, um, can also be translated, deliver us from the evil one, right? So the NIV translates it like that, uh, CS, uh, Christian Standard uh, translates it that way. And a lot, of, a lot of your Bibles will actually have maybe a little footnote or something that says, or evil one. And so reading it that way changes things, right? And lead us not into temptation from the evil one but deliver us from the evil one. So we're asking God to deliver us, uh, from, to keep the devil, um, from, to, to keep him from tempting us. And even if we are supposed to consider it joy when we face trials and testings, that doesn't mean we should seek them out, right? To seek out temptation would be clearly unwise. And so asking to be led astray makes I mean, led away from it, makes sense, right? This petition is humbly asking to be spared situations which might cause us to sin, while also then being asking to being brought out of the situations should they be required. Last part um, of the passage here for us, right? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Just in case we didn't hear it the first time. Jesus reemphasizes that if we can't forgive others, then it's clear there's something off with our relationship with God and, and, and this acceptance of, of God's forgiveness of us, right? So we've gone, well, we went through all that. Okay, so now that we've gone through that, it's time, it's time for me to land the plane here. I'm not a preacher, but I'm a talker. So you guys got all that. All right, so... Um, what are, let's, let's go back to the questions we asked earlier. What are some of the things that distinguish Christian prayer from that of what we'd call maybe a universal prayer or some instinctive type of prayer? Christian prayer should be God-centered. The heart and motive for prayer is much more important than the frequency, the length, 
or the mechanics of prayer. We are instructed to not be like the hypocrites who seek a self-glorification, but instead pray humbly to our Father for everything that we could spiritually or physically need. And we don't have to use a lot of words or a specific formula to get God's attention. What about the question, should prayer be inward um, or kind of contemplative or should be outward, right? The principle of God-centeredness in prayer pushes back on the idea that prayer should be inward or that we should seek some kind of oneness with ourselves or some type of centered on ourselves. That type of thinking suggests that the answer to our problems is inside ourselves and is is a false gospel, right? There's nothing inside of us that can deliver us from evil. Only Jesus, the evil one, only Jesus can do that. So what should we pray for? We can and should pray for God's provision, for God's forgiveness, for God's deliverance from evil. We are encouraged to pray for all of those things. And so, you know, I, I hope that going through this text has, has made some of these things clear. I would encourage you to go back and spend some time on it. There, there's a lot there, right? But I want to reiterate the, the importance of this spiritual practice of prayer. Um, I, I said it several times, but this teaching is at the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the most important part of the most important sermon ever given. And I think that's because communication is key to any relationship. And no relationship can thrive without it. Prayer is how we communicate with God. So it's worth it to take the time to develop some healthy habits regarding prayer. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I think there's a lot of ways. And honestly, um, you could probably come up with the best ways for yourself, but here are a few that I thought of, okay? Um, for me, set reminders throughout the day, whether it's on your phone, whether it's a sticky note or something, to pray. Like, you don't have to say what you're gonna pray for, although you could do that. Just, we are forgetful people. We are a busy culture. And so the idea, being reminded, we have a lot of ways to do that. Let's do it. Let's remind ourselves to pray. Um, I found this helpful is to write prayers for yourself. Right? Or, or find a psalm that, that you, can, you can recite that sort of kind of really speaks to your heart. Now, we're, we don't want to do this mindlessly. We're, we're definitely taught against that. But sitting down and writing in a certain season of life or like it's going to be a busy week or whatever, write a prayer out. Take the time to write that prayer out and then read it throughout the week and remind yourself, okay, this is kind of like, kind of take the time to, to, to spend with God before you get into the busyness of everything that's going on. Um, I don't know if you're the type of person that, that makes lists and starts their days. My wife is a list maker, right? So at the beginning of every, every week or month, there's lists of various things. And so write down a list of things to pray for and people to pray for at, when, you're, when you're planning for those things. And so that you see and you remind yourself, okay, oh yeah, I was going to pray. I was going to pray for this thing. Um, or I was going to ask God for this. Or I've been struggling with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask God uh, for guidance on that. Um, and kind of, kind of to end, like, actually pray for the people whenever you say that you're going to. Simple. It sounds so simple, right? But let your yes be yes and your no be no. I will end with this. I firmly believe that prayer is, is a keystone habit. I got that phrase uh, from a book called The Common Rule. And it says a keystone habit is a super habit. It is the first domino in the line. By changing one habit, we simultaneously change ten others. 
And so the idea there is that you, you develop the habit of prayer and it reaches into all aspects of your life. And I think you see that it's the most, like it's the center of your teaching on, on, um, in the Sermon on the Mount. So yeah, Jesus would agree with that. Like one of the things that, that's encouraged by this book is to, pre, to, to develop the habit of praying three times, um, three times a day in the morning, <laughs> at, at, in the middle of the day, and then sometime at night. I really liked what he had to say um, about praying in the morning. He says, by praying in the morning, we frame the first words of the day in God's love for us, right? The idea of our Father, which is to say that we uproot the weeds of legalism and we lay the first piece of the day's trellis on which love can grow. So we orient ourselves towards God first. There's a God-centeredness in all the things that we do. Be perfectly honest, I've spent a lot of time in my life praying when I go to sleep or praying at the end of the day. But taking the time to stop and pray before I even get out of bed reoriented my mind. And I, I was really surprised by how it reoriented its restructured parts of my day. And so I just, I just want to leave you with that. The idea that developing this habit of prayer, this communication with God, should be encouraged. Um, this is not a legalistic thing, Right? God's not going to love us more. Um, but we are going to be able to experience that love and understand that love more and more when we orient ourselves towards God first um, and then take the time after that to pray for others. Um, pray with me. Jesus, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you that we don't have to do things like prayer alone, that we can have instruction, that we can trust um, this instruction given authoritatively uh, by, by you, Christ. We just are so um, needy. We need so many things and we need so much instruction and you give that to us. You don't leave us alone in prayer um, and the confidence that you know what we need uh, before we actually pray it. Um, God, that, that is a comforting truth of you being just a good father um, to us. And so as we... Um, as we go about this week, may we find that time to spend with you, the idea of, of being centered on you uh, and not ourselves, um, and using that to reorient our, our weeks and ultimately reorient our lives. Um, it's in your name we pray.